Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Will the COVID-19 Omicron variant force Ontario to tweak its plan to ease COVID-19 restrictions? How are you dealing with financial stress during the pandemic? A company in Hamilton is playing a major role in creating a medal of freedom from the sunken USS Arizona. The United States will stage a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. Should Canada follow suit? And our latest Grey Cup legend is Montreal Alouette superstar Anthony Calvillo. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We did anticipate when we developed the roadmap to reopen that there would be an increase in the case counts. But I think the other really important factor is that even as the cases are growing, which are primarily the the Delta variant at this point, that our our hospitalization rates remain low. That is the voice of Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott reflecting on the increased case counts that we've seen over the last number of days, uh, primarily as we head indoors more often than not, and, uh, well, also the arrival of the COVID-19 variant of concern known as Omicron. And we do know that we don't have a lot of information yet on Omicron. Data is still coming in in terms of its transmissibility its uh, attack on the immune system. How deadly can it be? Uh, we have at least 13 confirmed cases of the new variant of concern in the province. There is a cluster of 30 in the London area that is certainly being analyzed. Uh, more details certainly in the days and uh, weeks to come in terms of its uh, dangerability, if you will. But this all leads to the question of Whether or not the provincial government, now that the new variants of concern is here, will the province push back, delay, postpone any of the restrictions that were going to be eased some as early as next month? Thomas Tenkate is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Thomas, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. So is it realistic to think that Omicron will force the province's hand and lead to a a pushback or a delay of some of these uh, restrictions? Um, Yeah, I I think it's quite likely that that they will sort of may push the pause button on on some of the things they might have been looking to to ease off. Uh, You know, I think it really depends on, you know, how how transmissible uh, Omicron is, Uh, in you know in comparison to the delta variant uh, as you said we're still sort of trying to understand a lot more about it uh, but uh, you know at this stage you know there's a lot of uh, signals or you know signs that it's uh, that it is uh, more easily transmissible uh, and so if that's the case that could uh, that would definitely push the pause button on a whole range of uh, easing of restrictions it seems like the the more omicron confirmed cases we get the more data we receive and can better make an educated uh, a guess or assumption on you know how deadly or how transmissible or how much more transmissible compared to delta uh, omicron is yeah no de- definitely and and i think it's you know it's one of those things with that uh, um, unless you're looking for it, you, you know you don't find it. So, so, so you know we the the, the latest surging cases uh, started at the sort of the end of uh, end of October, and but uh, you know and so since that time we've had something like uh, you know over eight thousand cases of Delta of the Delta variant identified, but but as you said, thirteen cases of Omicron. Uh, but but we could have you know. It could have been there already, but we didn't know, you know. So, so I think in some ways, it's now that we know to look for it, and now that we're, uh, you know, tracking it, the more more information we'll get on it, and we'll and that will 
give us a better you know we'll be in a better place to be able to uh, work out what's the way to control it. What's your best guess on when uh, public health officials uh, will have a clear or a, uh, a crystal clear picture of what Omicron actually is? Yeah. Well, like, like I know when it, when they uh, first, uh, first identified it in, in South Africa, the world health organization said it would be a few weeks I think we're sort of coming up around to that point, and 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 I think the good thing is that you know with because because this is you know a pandemic and that that uh, this is impacting you know countries all around the world, then then you've got a lot of resources going into trying to understand this, and so so because of that, I think that the timeline of of sort of figuring things out is 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 much less than uh, what it what it could be if it was just impacting a, a local community. So so my sense is that you know by by Christmas, we should uh, have a pretty good idea of, of what it, what's happening, and uh, you know, and that and that means by early January, we should uh, have some pretty good ideas on you know what what measures to 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 keep you know to take, as in you know whether or not you know easing off is off some um, restrictions is is uh, you know okay to do, or you know it could be well we need to uh, you know in, increase the restrictions again. So so yeah, there's a few few options there. No doubt about it. Thomas Tenkate is our guest. He's a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health with Ryerson University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We could find out sometime today when Ontario's Science Advisory Table releases its latest modeling on what kind of impact they, the, the table believes, Omicron will have. Uh, because as we know, cases are on the rise. There's a few more hospitalizations here or there, but that modeling might uh, paint uh, a fairly clear picture on their expectations of this new variant. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree uh, that you know the modelling plays a plays an important part in in decision making, and uh, you know sometimes you know we've seen you know we've seen the the government sometimes uh, you know really heated and sometimes just sort of. Uh, you know, you know, sort of say, well, yeah, we we'll just wait and see a little bit, but uh, but definitely the you know the modelling, uh, you know, it what it's going to do is it, it's taking into account the the uh, the evidence so far in regard to how how more how more easily this could be transmitted versus the the Delta variant, and if that's the case, you know, I'd I'd expect that the modelling will will really show, uh, you know, a, a sharp rise in cases because of that, uh, and so so I, I wouldn't wouldn't be uh too shocked if if the the you know the modeling uh shows you know quite a surge in, in cases coming up i would agree with that thomas always appreciate the time thanks for joining us today i uh, really appreciate the time thanks very much rick that is thomas Tenkate, professor at the school of occupational and public health with ryerson university uh yeah that modeling will be revealed later on today and we'll bring you the results in ch Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Money. Some say it's the root of all evil. Some want more of it. Some can do with a little less of it. We all need it, though. 
IG Wealth Management releasing its high net worth report, and it shows that most Canadians are taking stock of their wealth during the pandemic. And why shouldn't they be? Don Fox is with IG Private Wealth Management, also the host of Planning Your Financial Future with CHML Scott Thompson, Saturdays at 8 right here on 900 CHML. And he joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Don. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? I'm, I'm not too bad. Thanks for joining us this morning. So what does this high net worth report tell us? Well, there's just a, there's a little extra stress, um, certainly on the Christmas front. It's, uh, you know, just in general, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, if you caught my show last week or not, but certainly um, the financial stress is, is the, was the number one stressor. And you think in a pandemic, the health stress would be the bigger one. But it turns out, uh, no, again, with the pandemic, it's also put a little extra stress onto the financial side. So it became the number one stressor that Canadians are kind of suffering from, if you will. And uh, other than the exception was people dealing with the financial planner. It actually re- reversed the two. Uh, health became the number one stress and uh, financial became number two. So, you know, we do play a role. And again, sometimes it's just a matter you know, of just putting all the numbers together and saying, okay, we're in better shape than we were, or having a game plan, and that also relieves a lot of stress. You bring up a great point, because financial stress can cause uh, health-related stress and impact and anxiety and all that kind of stuff. So if your financial house is in order and you have a plan with the help of people like you, Don, at IG Private Wealth Management, that's going to lend to a much more clear mind, and that debt stress is going to melt away. Absolutely. It's a... you know, personally, it's not something that went through my mind when you're dealing with clients. You just kind of, you know, you, you feel great and adding value. And you can see the weight coming off their shoulders just saying, okay, here's, here's a way to deal with the situation financially. And it's like, whoa, this is so good. I wish we had done this earlier. And uh, it's just, uh, it seems to be a byproduct of what we do, really, is the emotional side of uh, dealing with your finances. For those who are suffering from, uh, let's just call it financial stress, for lack of a better term, especially over the holidays, because that that, uh, emotional tie to your finances, uh, you know, peer pressure, keeping up with the Joneses, all that kind of stuff, uh, is all ramped up during the holidays. What is your message to those individuals or those couples or families who are feeling that financial stress right now? Well, really just document it. Start to put a list together as opposed to getting those items that are, um, you know, last second and uh, we have to do have a budget. It really does. As much as nobody really wants to go through that, you know, item and, and, and go through the list and say, put a limit on each one. I know it sounds easier than it can be because, uh, you know, Christmas is and purchasing is a bit of an emotional buy at times. But if we can put that aside, be pragmatic about your spending, and simply put down, here's what we're going to be spending and do not go over this budget because there's just so many places that is pulling your dollars right now. And we were seeing the inflation numbers go right now, for example, with gas prices, uh, you know, certainly you know, <laughs> we are just talking the other day about $1.60 a liter uh, for, you know, probably it was the higher um, task, um, gasoline or certainly groceries is uh, getting up there. And actually, in fact, I had a, a listener sent me an email saying his inflation rate was 11.6% because he went through all the items he buys. Ouch. So that's having an impact. And then you say, okay, well, something's got to give. So here we are now going into the Christmas time, and you say, okay, what are we going to spend? The supply issue, some of the prices of those things have gone up. 
So it's a great time to take stock of what you're going to actually spend during Christmas. Absolutely. Don Fox is our guest, financial planner with IG Private Wealth Management. You can hear more from Don and um, co-host Scott Thompson from CHML on planning your financial future Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock right here on 900 CHML. Uh, Some other items from the high net worth report from IG Wealth Management point to, you know, some of the top issues from people who responded are they want to get ahead. They want to help their kids with university or college. uh, They want to help their children get into the housing market. And also, if they want to uh, help their children start a new business there's if you're a parent there's a lot of pressures on helping your kids apparently <laughs> yeah that's not you're not kidding there <laughs> it's uh it's a uh, are being stretched in a few ways they're trying to look after their own retirement which is you know a big project on its own and it takes years and years of of going towards that goal but all of a sudden you're having millennial kids and they're they're getting into the housing market and you're thinking, okay, how do they get into the housing market too? Because obviously we all know that houses have gone up about 30% in the last year. So it, it turns out that there's been a number of reports saying that parents are helping millennials with their down payment about 60% of the time right now. And so, yeah, that's, uh, it is difficult. It's, it's, again, putting all the numbers together, projecting it, and see what the options are. Because it may not be an option to help out the kids as much as you want or work a lot longer. And that is an option. Or perhaps work, find another source of income. Mm-hmm. Because you just can't make these numbers up. It is, not, it is literally, it's a, it's a ledger. You say, here's the money coming in, here's it going out. And you can project inflation, you can project uh, rates of return. Um, but you also want to say, okay, I want to have a great retirement too. If I'm going to spend money on my kids with this, that means I will not be going on those trips, etc. down the road. So something does have to give. Absolutely. We also know that, and we've got to go here, but we know over the next five or 10 years, there's going to be a massive amount of wealth that's transferred from baby boomers to their children. Uh, some estimates have it into the trillions when you're talking yeah. about North America or even the, the, the global uh, transfer of wealth. Um, that's going to be interesting to see what those children do with that money, whether it's getting into real estate, starting a new business, uh, you know, helping their children. That's going to be interesting to watch. Don, we got to run. Thanks for joining us today. And you can hear more from Don at IG Private Wealth Management on planning your financial future Saturdays at 8 on 900 CHML. Don, thanks for the time. Enjoy your day. Thank you very much, Rick. And again, I a shout out to the Thai Cuts for this Sunday. You got it. Oski Wee Wee. That is a Don Oski Fox Wee-wee. from IG Private Wealth Management. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Franklin D. Roosevelt, December 8, 1941, a day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and it destroyed and sank the battleship USS Arizona, killing nearly 1,200 of her 1,500 crew members, five out of the six Canadian crew members who were on that ship also died that morning 80 years ago today. There is a unique story that comes out of this, though, because all those years later, there's now a Hamilton company involved. 
that is helping preserve a piece of that World War II history. And here to chat with us about it is Philippe Dauphin. He is the Director General of Canment Materials and oversees the Rolling Mill Operations. Philippe, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. So this is a a very interesting story, what has emerged from the USS Arizona. Basically, well, I'll let you tell the story and and how CanMet is uh, is now involved in preserving a piece of history. So what's happening? Yes. uh, First, CanMet is part of Natural Resources Canada, a federal government department. Uh, We relocated to Hamilton in 2010 um, and work on all kinds of advanced materials issues, such as making pipelines safer, cars lighter and and emit less, and um, making sure that materials used in bioenergy and nuclear energy are safe. We were approached about two months ago by a foundation called the Lauren F. Bruner USS Arizona Memorial Foundation, um, asking if we could roll a small quantity of steel that had been salvaged from USS Arizona and uh, which they would then use in making memorial medals. Uh, They call it the Medal of Freedom uh, to honor the men who lost their lives that morning um, in 1941. And when I looked at my calendar, I figured, hey, if we do things right, we could actually do the rolling on the same day that the attack occurred. Um, And it turns out that USS Arizona was destroyed by a single bomb that fell through its deck and exploded in the ammunitions magazine, completely destroying it. And we know exactly what time that happened at, which was 8.05 in Pearl Harbor, which will be 2.05 this afternoon. And is that where the the steel will be rolled out at that time? It will be rolled out at that time, yes. We'll we'll have a small memorial, and uh, then we will uh, take the, the steel out of the furnace and then put it on the rolling table and roll it. So right now it's a sample that's about the size of a legal size pa- uh, sheet of paper, about an inch and a half in thickness, and we will roll it down to about four millimeter thickness. And in January, we'll complete the rolling, do it cold, um, down to 1.6 millimeter thickness. Wow. So how many metals will be made out of this steel? It should be a lot. We we are expected to roll about uh, a total of about uh, 300 pounds, so 140 kilos of that steel. Um, each one, um, one and a half inch thick uh, piece of steel turns out to, to about a uh, uh, 10-foot strip of steel. So imagine they, they will cut uh, the, the small A's uh, about the, sh- the size of a toonie. Um, out of that that steel, so they they could be making a lot, maybe a thousand, maybe two thousand. So, I mean, we we know that uh, steel making in the U.S. is uh, just as big as steel making here in Canada. Why wasn't this done in the United States? Why the Canmet Materials Lab in Hamilton? When they looked for a uh, an organization that could take a small amount of steel enroll it, custom roll it to their specifications, they couldn't find a, a shop or, or a company that could do it um, in, with their timing. And so they looked to the Hamilton lab to say, hey, can you, can you do this? And the answer was yes. Yes. So they, they were advised by a professor at the University of Missouri. Uh, I wonder if this is how they, they knew of us um, and then contacted us and uh, we, we could do it uh, between research projects.
Philippe Dauphin is the Director General at Canmet Materials and oversees the rolling mill operations at the Hamilton facility. What, what, uh, you must feel somewhat uh, honored to be a part of this process. We are. The, the coincidence is that Kenmet Materials, or the ancestor of Kenmet Materials, which, which was called the Physical Metallurgy Research Lab, was created just a, f- a mere few months after the attack in 1942 to help Canada do the metallurgical research it needed to help with its war effort. So, Philippe, do you know what these metals are going to look like? Have you seen the, the, the mock-ups or the finished product? We have seen a mock-up of the metal. It's quite nice. Um, So as as I said, it's a little bit bigger than a a toonie, um, and it's in the shape of a shield um, with that uh, stylized A for Arizona, um, which will be pressed onto the the rest of the metal. That's pretty amazing. Uh, What what is the the buzz at the lab? Are the workers excited about this project? Um, well, we, we are still in the COVID uh, return to work protocol, so there's not too many people at one time in the lab, but those that I've seen so far are super excited about the project. I can imagine so. So how long will this process take? The rolling itself takes about three, four minutes. Oh, wow. Um, but the, the whole process, um, to, we, we have to heat the, that, that um, sample or that, that uh, ingot of metal uh, up to 1100 degrees Celsius. So that will take a couple of hours. Then we take it out of the furnace, and then the the rolling is done in about two minutes. It's six passes. So it goes back and forth between the rolls, being thinner each time. And then we bring it to a quenching um, table where um, it is cooled rapidly to set the metallurgy. Um, And then uh, in January, we'll we'll reconfigure the rolling mill so that we can cold roll the steel down to 1.6 millimeters thick. Do you think this project will open the door to other similar ventures where, uh, you know, whether it's metals or, or whatnot, that this lab could be a hub for this kind of uh, activity? Well, it's not really a, a hub, but we did uh, create or, or uh, cast what became the Canadian Victoria Cross in 2008. Um, all the Victoria Crosses that have been handed out to soldiers or to their families over the years had been cast in the UK out of guns seized during the Boer War. Um, And um, at the time, we were approached uh, by the Canadian Mint and the Army asking, can you do uh, the metallurgical work for us? And so we developed the casting process for the Canadian Victoria Cross. Wow, that's amazing. Philippe, thanks for the time today, and uh, good luck with the, uh, the rolling out and this project. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. You too. That's Philippe Dauphin. He is the Director General at Canmet Materials in Hamilton, uh, overseeing the rolling mill operations and metal from the USS Arizona through the uh, Lauren F. Bruner USS Arizona Memorial Foundation, now in Hamilton, going to be rolled out and eventually will become Medal of Freedom medals for those who uh, have a connection to the USS Arizona and Pearl Harbor. And a Hamilton company is smack dab in the middle of that process. That is pretty darn neat. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Very interesting developments on the world stage over the last 24 hours. The United States will stage a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing to protest Chinese human rights abuses. Now, it's not a complete boycott. American athletes will still go to Beijing and compete 
in the Winter Olympics. We heard yesterday from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who said though U.S. dignitaries will not be dispatched to attend the Games, those American athletes will compete. I don't think that uh, we felt it was uh, it was the right step to uh, penalize athletes uh, who have been training, preparing for this moment, and we felt that we could send a clear message uh, by, uh, by not sending a, an official U.S. delegation. Saki says the U.S. has a fundamental commitment to promoting human rights and says the U.S. will, quote, not contribute to the fanfare of the games. Now, China has fired back today, accusing the U.S. of violating the Olympic spirit and also called on America to stop politicizing sports. Interesting developments. Bruce Kidd is a professor emeritus of sports and public policy at the University of Toronto and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rick. Well, what should we make of the United States' decision on this uh, diplomatic boycott? Well, I'm I'm relieved that they won't pull the athletes out. Uh, and if Canada and Australia and many other countries join this, as I expect they will, it means that the competitions will go ahead. But beyond that, I'm just not sure. Will it mean that uh, for the rest of time there'll be no nation states? associated with the Olympic Games? Uh, Will this uh, create other problems for the future of international sport as more and more states uh, and other interests uh, make a a very high bar of human rights a condition for attending, participating in sporting events in other countries? And of course, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. What will this do for the forthcoming World Cup and Olympics in the United States when uh, there are so many very frightening developments in that country, uh, including uh, the the erasure of uh, of voting rights, uh, including the suppression of a women's right to choose and so on. So uh, on the one hand, it depoliticizes sport. On the other hand, it intensifies the politicization of sport. Now, we've seen boycotts in the past. We haven't seen them recently, though. So does this set a new precedent, perhaps, in terms of nations being represented at sporting events? Not just Olympics, but you mentioned World Cups or otherwise. I think that's a great question, and we have to see how this plays out. Um, the, the, the presence of nation states in the visible way we've seen in the last uh, few years with leaders uh, being announced in the in the stadium as the athletes march into the opening ceremonies, that sort of thing. That's fairly recent. And prior to that, the states had very little role. Uh, in 1936, when the, uh, the Canadian government washed its hands of the idea of a boycott of Nazi Germany, Prime Minister Mackenzie King said, governments have no place in the Olympic Games. Uh, we're, we're not having anything to do with it. And, and that tradition continued really up until probably the 1970s. So maybe it'll go back to that, uh, but uh, maybe it will uh, mean, uh, because I can't see uh, the American and other governments just doing it themselves and not pressuring other people, maybe it will force uh, many other actors to, to make difficult choices about participation in international sport. Should we expect other countries, namely Canada, given what happened, especially with the two Michaels, to conduct a similar boycott? 
I would be very surprised if Canada didn't follow suit. I mean, uh, the Cretchen government uh, did not join uh, the U.S. In, uh, in, in, in the Middle East wars. Uh, but uh, in 1980, when President Carter initiated a boycott of the Moscow Olympics, even though the Canadian Olympic Committee and every Canadian athlete in the country strongly argued against supporting the boycott, the Canadian government knuckled under and ordered the Canadian Olympic Association as it then was to stay home. And I, I think that without, if, if Canada, Canada is likely to follow suit. Yeah, I would be shocked if uh, if Canada didn't. We're speaking with Bruce Kent, Professor Emeritus, Sports and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, as the United States has issued a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Games in Beijing, China, coming up in February. China's foreign minister firing back today, accusing the U.S. of violating the Olympic spirit, and also vowed that the U.S. will pay the price for its diplomatic boycott. What could that price be? Well, that's a great question, Rick. Uh, I'm wondering about tit-for-tat boycotts, uh, as we saw uh, in the 80s when the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Games and the Soviet bloc boycotted the Los Angeles Games. China doesn't have very much of a, of a soccer team for the World Cup. Uh, the, the Olympics in Los Angeles are a long way away in, 1920, in 2028. So um, I, I don't know. Um, this, this is lots of uh, grist for your, your conversations with guests because it's a completely open, it's, it's a completely open situation. Uh, we've never experienced something like this for a very long time. Yeah, it certainly has been a generation and a bit, no doubt about that. Bruce, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for your insight on this topic. Thank you, Rick. Have a good morning. You too. That's Bruce Kidd, Professor Emeritus, Sports and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Should also mention that Beijing, China is going to be the first, this is hard to believe, the first city in Olympic history to host both the winter and the summer games. I just read that this morning and I thought, wow, there isn't another city in the hundred years plus that the Olympics have been going on that has not hosted a winter and summer games, but apparently that is the case. We should also note that all of this comes about a month after Chinese tennis star Peng Shui uh, went missing after posting sexual assaults accusations against a Chinese politician on her social media account. So uh, China certainly taking it on the chin on the world stage and uh, apparently rightfully so. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Many players have earned the right to raise the great cup, but only a few can be considered Grey Cup legends. And we certainly have one on the show today, and that is the great Anthony Calvillo, Canadian Football Hall of Fame quarterback with the Montreal Alouettes. Anthony, good morning. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. Grey Cup week. What, is, what does this week mean to you? <laughs> to me right now, uh, it, it's quite different from, you know, when I was playing or whether I was coaching in, in the CFL, but uh, it definitely brings back a, a lot of uh, great memories and and what I like right now is, you know, there's a lot of uh, coaches that I that I played with or played against in Orlando Steinhauer, Mark Washington, um, O'Shea there in Winnipeg. So I'm really rooting for these guys. Um, you know, I, I, it's hard to kind of pick a team, what team I'm going for. But 
I just know both these coaches have done an excellent job of getting their teams ready to uh, to get in this game and, and finally get a chance to win another championship. Speaking of coaches, you've uh, re-entered the coaching ring or, or still in the coaching ring, offensive coordinator with the uh, Montreal Caravan uh, football team. Uh, you've also been on the sidelines as a coach with the Alouettes and the Argos. What has the jump to coaching been like for you? Um, it's It's been, uh, well, it's been interesting. You know, I, I always said I was never going to go into coaching when I was a player. But then when I when I finally retired, I knew I had to do something uh, with my life, and my passion was still football, the X and O's of it. So uh, the transition's been good. I've enjoyed it. It's just it's just taken me some time to adjust on what to expect uh, from the players that I'm coaching. Just because you know, as a as a player later on in my career, I had a, a certain standard for myself. So you know, when the coach told me to do something, I did everything in my power to make sure I did it and did not make you know try to not make a lot of mistakes and. And I knew that um, that you know early on in my football career that was not the case. You know I might have been a bit of a of a knucklehead and maybe didn't listen to the coaches all the time. So I was just trying to find that balance between being firm with the players and my expectations of them. And and that's really just getting to know them and how they prepare week in and week out. But other than that. It's been fantastic. I really enjoy what I'm doing. Does your experience now on the sideline give you a better appreciation for the coaches that uh, you were under that you played for? Oh, 100%. I always, you know, it's funny. I've been kind of joking around with my wife, kind of like, you know, I'm interested to find out and talk to, you know, Mark Trespin, Scott Milanovic, Marcus Brady, these guys who coached me. Like, how was I as a player? Was I demanding? Was I... Did you guys get upset with me? Like, what's what was the scenario? Because it's it's a whole different atmosphere uh, coming from one as a coach and two as a player. But now that I'm on the other side, man, it's this is uh, there's a lot of hard work and dedication that goes into every thought process in terms of what plays we're going to call and why we're going to call them. And then you got to explain that to the player. And sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't. But um, it's definitely beyond this side. I do have a new appreciation for it. I'm sure those coaches that you rattled off would think of you as a gym. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, we all got our work done, but I, I'm just very curious about, you know, how they felt at times. Because, mm-hmm. you know, even me as a coach, you know, you have you have players and you, you try to push them as much as you can. And, and sometimes there's some resistance there. And then you gotta you got to really take a step back. Okay, am I, am I doing too much? Am I... Am I pushing the wrong buttons for this guy? And because at the end of the day, you want to keep that guy, the quarterback, uh, as happy as possible. But you also want to make sure that you are challenging him and coaching him as well. Our latest Grey Cup legend here during Grey Cup Week on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is a legendary Canadian Football Hall of Fame quarterback with the Montreal Alouettes, Anthony Calvillo. Now, you started your career, many know, back in 1994 with the Las Vegas Posse. That was 27 years ago. Does does it feel that long or does it feel like yesterday? Um, it definitely feels that long. Um, you know, the great thing about this time of year, you know, especially when the football season's over, you start cleaning things up. So I go to my closet and I come across these old photos and I just came across about all these photos from Las Vegas, uh, in my rookie year. And it just brings back a, a whole lot of memories and, you know, trying to show the pictures to my girls and like who they, you know, I show them a picture and they're like, daddy, who's that? I'm like, that's me. <laughs> and they're like, they don't recognize me right the, at that age. Cause you know, it was 27 years ago, like you said. So, but no, it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, the, the years just continue to add up and, uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, great memories from that particular time, but these photos that, that I have now kind of brings back a lot more. 
Now, Ticats fans will certainly remember you in uh, your uh, days during uh, 95 to 97. Now, as the story goes, and you might want to clear the air here, the story goes that, you know, fans turned on you, you wanted out of Steel Town. Do you want to second the record straight and how it all went down? Well, I mean, in my last year there, we, we go uh, we go 2-16, two and, two and 16, and uh, that was in 1997. And those two wins that, that we had, um, I didn't even play in, that, in those two games. So, um, you know, there was a, there was high expectations of myself, especially getting there in 95 and being under Mike Kerrigan and Steve Taylor and getting the chance to play some. So, you know, everybody expected me to, to kind of take that next step. And, you know, and that's what every quarterback wants to do is take that next step. And, and the challenge is to be consistent. They don't, the one thing that, that fans have to understand that this, this game, the position of quarterback, the most most difficult thing to do is be consistent on a week uh, on a weekend on a weekly basis and and it takes the entire team uh, in order to do that so early on my in my career i wasn't able to do that and when i look back at it a lot of it has to do with my my preparation and and how i was able to uh, uh, conduct myself week in and week out but i think at the end of the day um uh, it was the best move for me to, to move on because you know after three years there and and, 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 and losing in any city is going to be very, very tough. So whether the fans turn on me or not, I think they have high expectations. They want a team to win and, and, and be associated with that. And when you go 2-16, and 16, it's very hard to support a team or support a quarterback um, when they don't win many ball games. we got uh, 30 seconds with the great Anthony Calvillo. Do you have a favorite Grey Cup memory? You've played in eight of them. You won three. What's at the top of that list? Well, I'm always going to reflect back to the first one. Um, you know, it was it was a hard-fought battle on a frozen field there in Edmonton, and I just remember uh, pretty much the uh, Edmonton scored late. They went for two. Uh, Timothy Strickland, our linebacker, knocked the ball down. They didn't get it, and then all of a sudden, they're going for the onside kick, and I'm just thinking to myself, okay, either they're going to get it, or we're going to kill the clock. And then all of a sudden, you see uh, Jermaine Copeland <laughs> receive the onside kick and then go in for a touchdown. And then after that, I knew I knew that that was that was it. And uh, you know, when all the great cups that I've seen prior to that, the best part is just being on the field with all the confetti that comes up of your of your team colors. And and that's what I was looking forward to was being on the stage and celebrating with my team in my in my city. And that's something I'll never forget. He's our latest Grey Cup legend, Anthony. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of this week. I appreciate it, Ricky. You guys have a good time, too. You too. Anthony Calvillo, Canadian Football Hall of Fame quarterback with the Alouettes. And our latest Grey Cup legend coming up tomorrow, the illustrious Mike Pringle. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Canada's most iconic football trophy is steeped in more than 100 years of tradition. This is Grey Cup Memories with Rick Zamperin. The German war is therefore at an end. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. Today is victory in Europe day. The Great War had ended, the Allied forces were victorious, and the post-war era was underway. The Hamilton Tigers, who had suspended operations because players had joined the Army from 1941 to 44, returned to the field, but now they had competition in Steeltown in the form of the Hamilton Flying Wildcats, who formed in 1941. The name Flying Wildcats was a nod to the Royal Canadian Air Force personnel on the team, and the team took off, playing in back-to-back Grey Cups. They beat the Winnipeg RCAF Bombers 
Rangers in the 1943 Grey Cup, but lost the following year in the first ever championship to be played at Hamilton's Civic Stadium. After coexisting for several seasons and not getting a sniff of the Grey Cup, the Tigers and Flying Wildcats realized they would be stronger together. And so in 1950, the two clubs joined forces to form the team Hamilton football fans have been cheering for ever since, the Tiger Cats. Ticats made the Grey Cup final four times in the 1950s, beating the Winnipeg Blue Bombers 12-6 in 1953 when Lou Cussero swatted the ball away from receiver Tom Casey at the goal line on the last play of the game to preserve the victory. The Bombers complained it was pass interference, but the referees disagreed and Hamilton were the champs. Four years later... Kenny Blaine pitches out to Dennis Mendick who slips away from Pete Newman. Tackled by Ralph Goldston who creates the fumble. It's recovered in the air by Ray Bobble and Bibble Bobble on that happy highway to the Bombers goal line going all the way for the touchdown that throws the Grey Cup game wide open. Jim Trimble's Tiger Cats smashed the Bombers 32-7 in the 1957 Grey Cup, the first to be shown on television from coast to coast. The game was made famous when Dave Humphrey, a Toronto football fan, stuck his foot out along the sideline and tripped Ticats defensive back Ray Bowell, who had intercepted a Winnipeg pass and was on his way to returning it for a touchdown. The Blue Bombers got their revenge and then some, beating the Cats in the Grey Cup final in 1958, 59, 61, and 62. But the Ticats would not be kept down for long and were on the cusp of their most illustrious stretch of football in franchise history. That's tomorrow on Grey Cup Memories. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.